I guess what it taught me is 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 that you know give give smart people freedom and believe in people and they'll do some great things and maybe they'll get you sued for 140 million dollars too <laughs> you know that's also possible Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Hamilton Nolan. He's written for Gawker, Deadspin, The Guardian. He covers labor, politics, and boxing. I've met him at some events, I mean, and we were sitting beside each other for several hours, and you just never know how you'll click with somebody. But uh, I've admired his work for a long time all of his work. He's one of these people who can kind of do anything and maintains the same vitality and just breadth of knowledge. I really admire him as a writer, and, and this was a fun chat. So I hope you enjoy Hamilton Nolan. So I really enjoyed rereading a number of articles and finding a couple of new ones of yours about boxing, but I would love to just start with how you got to Gawker or any writing you did before that. And from there, um, just this interesting progression you've taken. I, I love finding people like you who are involved with boxing that seem, I, I guess I relate to it as a bit of an outsider. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in Florida. Um, I started out my journalism career at Alt Weekly in Jacksonville. Uh, did that for a while when I first got out of school. Um, moved up to New York, wrote for a trade magazine for a few years, was a media reporter, um, and then went to Gawker after that and spent like uh, eight years at Gawker and, um, you know, writing about all types of shit um, media, politics, uh, labor, all types of stuff. Um, but I started boxing probably right around the time I started at Gawker. So probably about uh, 12 years ago now. Um, and when I started boxing, yeah, that's when I, I've been kind of a casual fan, casual boxing fan before that, you know, watch the Tyson fights and whatnot. But um, I started boxing, I just got, I just got so interested in it, you know, and I started uh, going to fights, started and started writing about fights. Um, wrote about fights like I actually I think my first boxing pieces were for the all which is a dead a website that is now dead but was a was a cool website uh, and just went from there so yeah I mean there's a lot of you know it's one of those sports that attracts a lot of uh, writers for some reason but I have noticed that most of the good I shouldn't say most I should say many of the good um, boxing writers were people who actually boxed, I think. Did you box yourself? Did you have a background in it? Um, I, you know, I started boxing about 12 years ago, so I'm still boxing today. I mean, I'm, I'm sparring. I'm not, comp I'm not uh, competitively boxing, but I still spar when uh, the world's not shut down. Um, <laughs> I spar once or twice a week still um, and have been doing that, you know, since since I started. So, uh, yeah, I still box. I, I start uh, worrying about my brain at a certain point, but 
I'm trying to like I have myself on a like a like pitchers on a pitch count now, except for like boxing rounds. So hmm. <laughs> how how did that change your perspective of actually getting in there? Because I feel like ninety nine percent of people into boxing have no experience with actually doing yeah. it. And it's one of those rare things that's out there like good friend of mine is a, a, a psychiatrist who works at a, an institution for the criminally insane and anybody yeah. he talks to about anything to do with psychiatry he is condescended to because somebody's read a reddit for five minutes <laughs> and yeah. boxing's the same way like what are they really doing what's sophisticated about this they're just bashing each other's heads in until you do it and understand yeah yeah, yeah. i mean as you know right like uh I, I mean, I think all my understanding of boxing is from boxing. Hmm. I don't have <laughs> everything I know about everything I know about boxing is because I box. Like, um, it's not that I'm like a, the greatest boxing historian or anything, but um, I think that if you box for a long time, you know, it's a. I mean, it's meant to, it's it's a cliche. Everything in boxing is cliche to some extent, but you know, it's it's such a mental sport, and that's what the most interesting part of boxing to me is. You know, it's you're figuring out, you're figuring things out constantly under pressure, and you know, when you uh, you know when you box, box as you're boxing, you're you're figuring out boxing you know and sort of when when you um are writing about boxing you have all that stuff that you figured out you know so it's like i've never I, i'm not like a person who's like uh oh you shouldn't be a sports writer if you haven't played the game and blah 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 like mm -hmm. i never i never believe that or anything like that but you know for me personally um i mean i understand boxing from boxing um and i think that also like the best, the people who understand boxing the best are like people in boxing gyms, you know, most of them are, aren't good writers, yeah. <laughs> luckily for us, you know, sure. um, there's only, but you know, if you like, who, who are the people in this world who really understand boxing better than anybody? It's like fighters and trainers, you know, fighters and ex-fighters, like those guys and women um, understand boxing better than anybody just a lot of them are professional writers so there's a little space for us too yeah well and I, I wonder for you because i mean you cover the media currently you've got a a new gig writing politics which you're one of my favorite people to read on that subject because i think we should <laughs> overlap tremendously in our utter disgust for the current milieu yeah um but i wonder to follow Tyson was to follow somebody that almost from the beginning transcended sports into something mm -hmm. very emblematic of where America was in terms of his popularity and what America was attracted to in him. So I wonder, were you as attracted to the effect of Mike Tyson or was it just what he was doing in the ring? Because it mm -hmm. seems like you work on this on many different levels in terms of even how you deconstructed, and we can get into it a little later, the Pacquiao-Mayweather fight. Um, yeah. what you were talking about in that fight was really talking about where marketing is right now and capitalism, yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, boxing is such a like distilled example of the brutality of capitalism in a sense. I mean, if you, if you, if you care to look at boxing through the frame of 
politics and inequality. I mean, it's like the it's like a cartoon version of of what a lot of sports are, right? You know, it's like the mo boxing is always the most of everything. So it's the most. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, it's it's true about football to to a large extent too, right? But even more true about boxing because um, in boxing, I think that it's so brutal. You know, to become a fighter professionally, you have to. Um, not have a lot of good other alternatives for one thing, um, because it's just such a nasty and hard way to make a living. Um, and you know, to make it even worse in boxing, there's no league, there's no players union, there's no, you know, there's no nothing. It is complete like cutthroat winner take all capitalism, you know, 99% get nothing and 1% get everything. I mean, that is the reality of, of boxing, professional boxing, you know, as a sport too. So, um, yeah, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, and it's, I think it's funny cause like, it's a problem with boxing writing, right. That like boxing lends itself so easily to these extreme, metaphors and comparisons that it's like it's sort of a minefield for boxing writing because it's it's so easy yeah you know to pull out those metaphors because they're kind of true in boxing right they're not like you know to be like boxing is a is a fight to the death much like life is or business you know it's it actually is but it makes for like shitty boxing writing so um right. that's a danger for all of us but yeah, I mean, boxing and capitalism, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't get any more like unfettered, unregulated, cutthroat, winner-take-all capitalism. Like boxing is the sport version of that system, you know? And I keep, uh, I always think about somebody trying to organize boxing as a sport, right? Because I mean... Uh, even even UFC has you know a central body and a league and you know you see UFC fighters talk about unionizing and like it obviously it hasn't happened yet but there's there's been that you know impulse and there's been those conversations and there have been stories about it but in boxing man just thinking about the structure of how the boxing world is set up it's so daunting to try to figure out like where would you even start um, it's a big, it would be a big hurdle, man, because it's so broken up into little kingdoms. And um, yeah. it's hard, man. It makes you feel bad for fighters, but but um, there does need to be, I mean, there needs to be a hero. There needs to be a, a like Cesar Chavez, who's also a fighter, who <laughs> who can get that ball roll. You know? <laughs> I don't know who that is, though. Well, it's funny because just during, during this quarantine i've been going through a lot of older movies that i haven't seen for a while and watching chinatown where i mean such a convoluted plot the plumbing of that thing is very hard to sort of wrap my mind around but yeah. holistically this idea that if you're connected if you're powerful you're untouchable and not just nepotism but incest writ large in the film um yeah. i was just thinking Exactly what Robert Town is trying to say in that film, you have somebody like like how boxing was tethered to total corruption, the mob, bootlegging, very yeah. powerful underworld figures, and then you kind of 
even in, in Trump's trajectory, recognizing that his fortunes were tied to hotels, casinos, um, needing to bring Tyson, the pinnacle athlete of his age, to be photographed next to him, Don King. Um, and from there, like listening to an announcement yesterday from Jared Kushner that somebody with zero qualifications is in charge of the biggest health crisis of the century. Yeah. I'm like, Chinatown was 1974, and we're living an even scarier version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know. It's, it's bad. Like, I... <clears throat> Every every time I've said every time in the past five years that I've said like this is as stupid as it can possibly get like I've always been wrong I've never yeah. it's always gotten stupider and worse and scarier so I'm trying not to uh, make any predictions or anything these days which is hard but like like I remember in <clears throat> I remember in 2015 when Trump came out and and was like. Uh, you know, he put out the press release and was like, um, we need to stop Muslims coming into America until we figure out what's going on. I was like, this is the craziest shit that could ever happen in a presidential campaign. Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And clearly, like, this is going to be the this is the pinnacle of stupidity. Yeah. And that, like, wasn't even the beginning, you know? Yeah, Not exactly. only was it the beginning, but it also it came true in reality. So... Yeah, that's not a very sunny subject, actually. Well, no, I just, I just find it so interesting that you have boxing that's around for over 120 years. I yeah. mean, kicking off with the person who created the version of it, his son was fucking Oscar Wilde, and is why Oscar Wilde is in jail. Like, pretty <laughs> odd beginnings for this game. Um, yeah. To a game that's never been reformed, that really hasn't changed, that, that there's no barrier to entry. Thank God for writers, because, I mean, I bullshitted my way to my first credential, yeah. and that's how I got into it. I wasn't yeah. writing from Harvard or any Ivy League institution or somebody like Don King in prison for manslaughter. What's yeah. the quickest way to make a buck where nobody can get in my way? Boxing yeah. is such a clear beacon for, the, for attracting these kind of people. Yeah. No, it's... It's true. I mean, well, it's it's kind of interesting. It's like the you know, it's like the ultimate like lottery mentality almost. You know, because there's like, it's like selling people hope. I mean, you can say to anybody like it doesn't matter who you are. You know, if you get in that ring and you fight your heart out, you know, and you do it and you tough it out, like you can be a champion. You know, but also you can look at math and you could be like, okay, there's two people in every fight. And one of them's gonna lose, you know. Yeah. And then who? And then who wins those two is gonna go to the next fight, and one of them is gonna lose until there's only one champion in the whole damn world, and everybody else loses, you know. That's a pretty straightforward explanation of capitalism, too, you know. Sure. But it's uh, it, it's so seductive because there is that little that little grain of hope, you know, is real. So. Is there is there a fear for you right now? I mean, I haven't, just because there's so much to kind of look at with how unprecedented everything is, but I mean, speaking of zero-sum games with boxing, but I mean, our industry, I'm seeing outlets dropping like flies, which they were doing before this, this virus yeah. la launched millions of people into unemployment. 
burying airlines. I just saw one outlet I wrote for that pay pretty well, Southwest Airlines, Southwest the, the magazine, Boxing Monthly has gone under. I mean, yeah. I'm wondering, like, where where does this go af- in the aftermath and recovery? Like, how are you feeling? Because I want to talk to you a bit about the Gawker thing and, and also Deadspin and just know what it was like for working for these institutions that were sort of upstarts that gained so much respect and attention and controversy and just from the inside kind of, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say, I hope that you don't have a book coming out in the, in the very near future. Cause it's, um, a tough, t- <laughs> a tough time for no. that. Dude. No, uh, okay. no, no, no. Glad your books. Do are you, out. do you have no. one coming? Okay. No. Yeah. So agree for that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Gawker and Gawker and Deadspin and Gawker Media, the whole company, I mean, I think the, the thing that I took from the whole experience was like, if you just take, if you find a lot of smart people and you just let them do what they want, they'll make something good, you know? And the actual, like, um, the, the crazy part is not that, you know, Gawker Media... And, made all these cool publications that did a lot of good stuff it's that that is a that's such a unique thing i mean because the formula is really it's that simple you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. it just we we had an owner who was kind of a lunatic and who was like crazy enough to like actually allow everybody to do what they want and not just say that as a bullshit line. But then, you know, he's up here like setting all these rules and, and, you know, there's all these boundaries that you can't really cross. And like, uh, you know, Gawker media was a place where it was really like, okay, we're going to hire people who are smart, do what the fuck you want. Like, and that's it. And you could either like, if you weren't good at it, then you could get fired. But a lot of people were good at it and they thrived and it produced, you know, so these websites that people liked, um, you know, Gawker or Deadspin or Deadspin is probably a better example because it probably had a higher ultimate level of quality than Gawker. I mean, Gawker was very hit and miss. We had good years and bad years. Um, Deadspin, you know, was was pretty great for a long time. Um, but it really, the, at the root of it all, was just the idea that we are going to give freedom to writers, you know, and that's what produced all that great stuff. And that was, and so everybody that worked at those places, and I mean, Deadspin was the the shining example because the the idiot new owner tried to take away that one aspect of it. You know, that the what what the new owner who came from private equity was incapable of understanding because he's a business guy was that idea, which was that the key to all of this is our ability to, to do what we want, to write what we want. That is the foundation of everything, you know? So when they came in and they said to the Deadspin people, like, write about everything as long as it's sports. Mm. Like, to them, that was a small, you know, a minor concession that shouldn't be a big deal for the sake of the business, blah, blah, blah. But that's because they were incapable of understanding that that actually undermines the entire idea that made Deadspin good in the first place, which was they can say what they want. And that's why everybody quit at Deadspin. So, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like it, 
I guess what it taught me is 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 that you know give give smart people freedom and believe in people and they'll do some great things and maybe they'll get you sued for 140 million dollars too <laughs> you know that's also possible so oh. um that's why i guess private equity firms don't tend to take that approach but um you know in general i remember one time when i first got like when i pretty early on had started working at gawker and um like you know there wasn't a whole lot of editing at gawker and that could be intimidating to some people you know because you're like oh there's all these people reading and you're just sort of saying whatever the fuck you want and and nick Den was like well if you if i didn't think you were smart enough to put up a post i shouldn't have hired you hmm. i was like all right that kind of makes <laughs> sense you know like <laughs> that yeah. that should make sense everywhere that should actually be a guiding principle for any sort of editorial operation right like you guys are here because you're smart enough to be here and I want you to do what you want. Um, but that's hard to find in the real world. Well, and I wonder also just that tone, because I mean, I watched that documentary, I think it's up on Netflix, exploring how Hulk Hogan and my good friend Peter Thiel that I was fortunate enough to meet at the World Chess Championships. It was oh. a real delight. Um, <laughs> wonderful guy. Yeah, he, he's a, a singularly unpleasant presence. It, it's like if you're taking a bath and you see an electric eel charging at you, it's kind <laughs> of his resting bitch face. Um, but I, I, I just wondered, like, as I look at Twitter, and I think you do, you do Twitter very well, I suspect you must hate it. Like, Definitely not. <laughs> not true, but thank you. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way. I see the response to a lot of stuff you're doing. I mean, you're you're utilizing it in a way that seems like it's an asset to the discourse as far as distilling what the fuck is going on and framing it in a way that's a useful thing to get a hold of. To You offer signal instead of noise, and 99% of it is noise from what I can tell. I say this as somebody with no facility to be on it. Yeah. But I'm bringing this up in a belabor, to belabor the point of... The idea of a website where the mandate for writers is to talk about what writers would talk about to each other, to offer a kind of backstage pass into real discussions yeah. about things that are pertinent, yeah. um, the inner workings of, of class and culture and that kind of stuff. Um, there's something really exciting about it, but as we, as we continually devolve into something Something like Twitter, when I read it, all it feels to me is, is like performative. It's, it's like verbal selfies and how people yeah. post. They hate being photographed, but they want to endlessly photograph themselves. I don't know. I listened to a lot of Ronan Farrell. I really respect what he did, you know, bringing down Weinstein and, and Me Too and all of that. But it is really difficult to listen to that podcast with how unbelievably self-congratulatory it is, given you've been congratulated a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Nick Den's like founding myth of Gawker was like, you know, he used to work for the Financial Times and he was a reporter and <clears throat> he would go to work and do his job and report and write, you know, and publish stuff in the paper the next day. And then they would go to the, all the reporters would go to the bar after work and they'd be like, OK, like what was the real story? Like what really happened? You know, what was all the stuff that couldn't make it in the story? And so his 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 insight was like, 
which is like, you know, why I always felt like there was actually a sort of an important ethical um, level to Gawker, even if the actual content of Gawker was a lot of dumb shit a lot of the time. The the underlying um, approach of it, I thought, was was very ethical, which was like, mm. people deserve to know the real story, you know, like, the real story shouldn't be something that's shared among this little elite insider class, you know, where like we have the public version here that we're going to give to the public and then the insider version, which is much better and much more interesting and much more insightful, you right. know, that we are going to share with each other and not tell the regular people about, you know. And so the whole sort of project of Gawker was like, we're going to say the stuff that everybody else can't say. And that was, I think, probably also an important reason why Gawker was popular because, you know, people used to send send us stuff all the time. I mean, other journalists used to send us stuff all the time that they couldn't publish, you know, like, right. which is stupid in a sense. If you're running a news organization, you know what I'm saying? Why do you want your own reporters sending the most interesting part uh, of the story which they cannot publish to another, you know, publication for them to publish. Um, mm. But, you know, it's also, it might be one of those things that I think we're moving in the other direction now because, you know, a side effect of Gawker getting sued out of existence um, is definitely going to be more reluctance to take that approach by publishers rather than, you um, rather than less you know everybody's right. more gun shy now and you know the fact that <laughs> i always feel like gawker guy we got our ass kicked like worse than anybody in history because not only did we get sued out of existence and bankrupted and shut down you know but then everybody who destroyed us is now running the world also. You know what I'm saying? All of our mm -hmm. enemies are actually <laughs> the most powerful people in the world now. You know, Peter yeah. Thiel is a White House, a top White House advisor and Jared Kushner and Don, you know, all our enemies are currently ruling the world. So hopefully in the long term that turns around, but we'll see. Do you think it does? I mean, do you think a lot of the, the it's interesting, a lot of the people I know that have been in those institutions, which I, I never was, but people that, you know, I notice it with when I listen to, like, let's say the long-form journalism podcast, the backgrounds are so homogenous. They're mm -hmm. all from the same places. Their parents all have the same occupations. None of them had student loans. And I just wonder if you don't have outsiders the way journalism used to be a blue-collar job. Yeah. If if everybody's at the same institutions and you're friends with everybody, you sure report on them in very different ways. <laughs> yeah. Than if you, you know, you yeah. didn't grow up in that neighborhood. Yeah. You, it is pretty interesting, right, to look at the history of journalism back, you know, 100 years ago and it really was like you say it was really like a blue collar thing and it was like people coming, you know, little urchins coming up from selling the papers to like being right. the errand boys to becoming the reporters to becoming the editors you know and it was not like people coming out of Yale and shit like that and now it is like um I mean I remember when I first moved to New York City uh and I was like a, you know I'd only worked at this all weekly in Florida and like in my like I I I made like uh you know copies of all the stories I'd written and stuff and like made a little packet I was like 23 years old or whatever 
and I like came to New York and I like put my little packet and and I wrote like a cover letter to all those to like Rolling Stone and the New Yorker and uh, the Village Voice and all the places I want to work and I just sent it to him and I was like hello I am a writer and I would like a staff writer job like here are here is my clips and like sure. in my mind that was like how you would get a job right like you come sure. and they'll read your stuff and be like wow you're so great like you're very you're a very smart writer like we must hire you and obviously like I was so wrong I mean I could not have been more wrong about how you get a job a good journalism job in new york right it's more like you went to yale you know oh yeah <laughs> or like yeah or your you know your uncle knows uh, an editor at the new york times um which was really like I, I like i was actually very disillusioned by that you know because i always thought of journalism as like this sort of crusading which it is you know but but uh the 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 top level of journalism is not like that, right, as you know. The practice of journalism is very righteous, but the institutions on top of journalism are very elitist. Well, yeah, and it's not even so much that everybody went to the same school, it's that their parents went to the same school. If, if they're all legacy versions yeah. of Ivy League school, it's a little right. different. Yeah, and, and you're right, it's like, and those things affect, you know, they affect the product, like when we, when we started having, you know, when when the media started unionizing and a lot of all these all these newsrooms started unionizing, and you hear people talk about their concerns, you know, everywhere the concern is like diversity, 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 and like part of the reason that people are so concerned about diversity, I mean, of course, there's the basic reason is like it fairness, you know, we want the door to be, we want a level playing field for everybody, we want equal pay and stuff, but also it's like you know. Uh, like news is not like made by a magical computer, you know, that, that spits out, like, here's what the news is today. Like, it's just what's in the minds of the people in the newsroom. Right. So like, right. if all people in a newsroom went to Yale, like that's what your news report is going to be. And it's going to be, it's not going to reflect reality. You know, it's, it's like, in journalism of all fields, like there should be equality in every field for, for justice reasons. But in journalism, there's an extra reason, which is you're supposed to be reflecting the world as it is, you know, and if you don't have any people in your newsroom that grew up poor and you don't have any people who aren't white and you don't have people who didn't go to Ivy League schools, right, your news report is going to suck. Like it's going right. to be very narrow. Like always look at the... Um, <clears throat> At the, uh, you know, if you read the New Yorker and they have the restaurant review up front, like in the front of the New Yorker every week, there's a restaurant review. And it's like you can track the gentrification of New York neighborhoods hmm. by just looking at what neighborhoods these restaurants are in because they're the neighborhoods that a 26-year-old New Yorker staffer can afford to live in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Right. So now they're reviewing restaurants in Crown Heights, you know what I'm saying? If you go back 10 years, they're like reviewing restaurants in Williamsburg. But it's it's just a funny little reflection of like, I mean, and that was the thing that I think was so disappointing to me when I sort of found out how the media tends to work in reality is like, it just seemed like they weren't really as committed to all the stuff they talk about as, as um, I thought they would be as an idealistic young man, you know? 
No, it is. I mean, it is. It is interesting though, because I mean, even with boxing gyms, like, uh, I I think when the New York Times wanted to do a profile on me, largely it was because like you have a book out at a good publisher, and mm-hmm. you're publishing at some pretty big name places, Esquire, Harper's, or the Paris Review, and I had to be like, you know, none of those places paid me anything for that, right? Like zero, <laughs> and. You know, you know that even with a book deal at Simon and Schuster, I still qualify for Medicaid, right? Yeah. Like, do you get this? Like, I'm not teaching boxing in the park because it's a quaint, romantic notion. Because <laughs> I, I have to pay the rent, and I don't have enough money to do it. Because, yeah. kind of like boxing, the people who've come from money like can take unpaid internships. Yeah. And nobody else can. Yeah. So. You know, is this a meritocracy? Like, maybe, but you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's it's fucked up. What is this? What is this? What is this quarantine doing for your livelihood these days? Well, it ended all boxing income, obviously. So, yeah. you know, maybe this is not the the most diplomatic thing to raise, but I mean, like, if Ring Magazine goes under, <laughs> I don't. I don't really know how to make an income. I I've moved into an apartment with somebody that I had four dates with, and <laughs> now we've spent two weeks together, which is a you know itself a fascinating exploration, and it's been great. But I mean, yeah. I have contacted my roommates back in Washington Heights to be told it's it's the highest per capita infection rate in the city. I haven't verified that, but that's what they've said, and they're like, yeah. "Don't come back, and yeah. don't come back for months." And it's just a little weird that my whole family's in Canada. I couldn't go to see them if I wanted to, I think. I think, yeah, I think they shut the border. I'm not sure. But, so, yeah, it's wild, man. And, I mean, I think it's between 60 and 70% of the U.S. is one pay- paycheck away from not being able to pay their rent. Yeah, there's always been a, a statistic that's like 40% of Americans say they could not come up with $400 for an emergency expense, you know? And so when you think about, I've been thinking about that too, the past couple of weeks is like, I mean, I, I don't know if the government appreciates like the urgency of what's happening right now, because yeah. even in normal times, you know, people get into hard times in normal times, but you can go out and hustle. Like people go out and try, you know, they go out and try to make a living. Like they go out and try to get a, a, a little job somewhere or, or panhandle even or do anything, you know? And now it's like people cannot make an income period. And I don't know what's going to happen when people can't like buy food and buy diapers for their kids, you know? Yeah. And that could be, to, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are already there today, you know? So it's a weird time, man. I keep coming back a little bit. Both you and I were in Vegas for the Pacquiao Mayweather fight. And I have this sense that when people look back and there's like a sporting event, the way there's been, you know, the Vietnam War for a lot of people, perfect emblematic moment is Ali Frazier. Mm-hmm. The, you know, white people needing to cling to somebody to shut this guy up, to shut yeah. up what he's doing, to shut up what he represents. And, you know, all these things that were controversial about his position, black is beautiful, I'm powerful, nobody muzzles me, et cetera, et cetera. 
and then sort of conservative white America finding a good black champion, just like Joe Lewis was, who never said the wrong thing, was never photographed with a white person, you know, a similar kind of shoehorned into this mold. Uh, I, that sickening feeling, that nausea of the moment the bell rang at, at the MGM Grand, basically I was like, this is so perfectly like if I ever become a grandfather and they're like, what was the time like? It was to be surrounded by that much influence, power, money in the most meaningless event that I've ever been to in my life. And I mean, I must have gone to some high school field hockey game <laughs> or badminton, intramural badminton, but nothing compared to the utter vacuity of, yeah. of, of that event. And I mean, you covered it. So what was it for you? May, 2015. Uh, yeah. I mean, you did better than me, first of all, because I went out there um, Gawker sent me out there. That was definitely the heyday of Gawker when they would send me out to, to Vegas to cover a fight. But, um, you know, I, when I got there, first of all, like Deadspin, right when I got there, Deadspin ran this big piece about how Floyd Mayweather beats up women. And so immediately they did not give me a pass to the fight because I, I put in for my credential for Deadspin. So they denied my credentials. So I ended up watching that fight in the basement of the Excalibur on pay-per-view in the uh, ring where they have like the jousting and shit for $100. So that made it even more ridiculous, if you can imagine. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I actually rewatched that fight, um, I think just last week, like they... Hmm. It must be on the zone or something now. You know, this is how desperate I am right now. I'm, I'm back watching old fights. And uh, Pacquiao did a little better than I remembered as I watched yeah. it back. He was, in the, he was in the fight a little more. I mean, I remember it being so one-sided when I watched it. Me too. Yeah. In terms of, um, in terms of the spectacle of it, I mean, the fact, the fact that that was the biggest money fight is just so... I mean, that fact alone is just ridiculous, right? When you see the quality of the fight. Um, I must admit that I bet I put a bet on Pacquiao, even though I, mm. my my head knew that he was not going to win, but, you know, I was being guided by my heart. So my, my uh, which is not good for my credibility. But, yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was ridiculous. It was. I think you're right about that. Your analysis is correct. Like the the sort of the sort of peak, ridiculous, vacuous, meaning nothing but money fight. You know, in that sense, it was like the perfect Mayweather fight because it oh. it was stood for nothing but money. Didn't represent anything about boxing. Wasn't the true test that everybody wanted it to be. But yet he did manage to make it the biggest money fight. So it's kind of you could say it's Mayweather's crowning achievement in that sense. You know? Well, it's just it's it's so interesting because I've been for something I'm working on, kind of researching the intersection of artists and magicians and why, if you find out how a trick, the mechanics of a trick based on its secret, everybody feels ripped off. But yeah, if we find I'm... out um, a writer or an artist you know, we read Van Gogh's letters, we go, oh my God, this painting is so much more enriched knowing what it meant to him and knowing what he was going through when he 
painted it. It has this diametrically opposite feeling of we want to feel connected to the artist and we need distance from the magician. We can't be reminded yeah. that he's an actor playing a wizard. You yeah. know? And, it, and there's something about the idea that every magician kind of started off as a hustler. I mean, it is a hustle. But if yeah. I hustle you and rip you off in a scam, you want to punch me in the jaw. But if I do yeah. a trick and say, here's a show, please come and bring your family. You know I'm going to trick you, but yeah. I'm going to trick you anyway, and it's going to be entertaining. <clears throat> You'll give me the money. I'll do the hustle. And we feel good yeah. about it. We're both smiling. Yeah. And with, <laughs> with Mayweather, it's like, you know this fight is going to suck. You know that all of my fights are pretty boring since my hand yeah. i have hand problems um yeah. i've moved up in weight i can't really do anything special in the ring where you've got memorable fights that people want to revisit and enjoy because yeah. none of them really were or are all right but wouldn't it be satisfying to see my head get kicked in by this guy wouldn't yeah it? yeah you got to give mayweather credit on that level that he managed to make more money than anybody without having any of the qualities as a fighter that normally uh, bring in the general public, you know what I'm saying? Especially in the, in the latter parts of his career. I mean, he like, I think if you're, if you're like a boxing purist, you know, I would have, I would have bought the pay-per-views regardless because, um, you know, he, he does have skills that are incredible to watch for boxing yep. purists, but no by the same token, not interesting at all to the general public. And you're right. He managed, and that was true for years, right? I mean, all, yep. all of his biggest, all of his biggest money years, that was true, ironically. And yet he did manage to ride that sort of villain persona. You know what I'm saying? And everybody kept buying his fights. And he never right. lost because he was making the fights. Like, I don't, he, you're right. Like, he, he managed to hustle America. He's probably one of the greatest hustlers in America in that sense. He made himself, like, close to a billion dollars probably without giving people anything that they actually wanted to see. <laughs> well, and that that's, yeah, no, because I, I think about it. It's like there's so many things where we feel compelled to buy them and, and – once they arrive in the mail and they get delivered, you go, wow, and you open up the package. And the moment you open up the package, buyer's remorse instantly. Yeah. And all of Mayweather's fights were like that once <laughs> he signed these huge contracts. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, they're all, like, by the Ford sixth round, you're like, why? Why did I buy this, man? Yeah. Because Robert I already Griffin. bought this. Yeah, and I <laughs> yeah. already bought it, and it was exactly like this. It's like a shirt that doesn't fit properly. Yeah, maybe uh, this time that? will be different. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. it's the lottery ticket thing again, you know, scratching off those lottery tickets. Maybe we're going to hit, maybe he's going to get knocked. Maybe Alberto is going gonna, is gonna to get a good shot, you know. <laughs> right. Never happened. Right. Yeah. Well, and so, like, what were some of the other memorable things that you covered within the, the rubric of boxing that, that stand out for you? In your career, you know, I've covered. Uh, I, I don't know. I covered a lot of fights. I cover a whole lot of fights in New York, um, uh, Vegas. You know, I've covered. Uh, I mean, some of the ones that stand out to me 
actually one of the first fights I went to, one of the first big fights I went to in New York was, uh, it was, uh, I think it was Duddy, John Duddy was fighting on St. Patrick's Day, you know. And, uh, I think he was the headliner. I'm not sure, I can't remember if he was the headliner or not, but they, it was also uh, the first time I saw Gamboa fight, mm. you know. And, and it was pretty, it was like I had only been boxing for a little while at that point. And I just remember like watching Gamboa live and just being so blown away, you know, like it was oh. the first time I think I'd seen a guy that gifted in person. So good. You know? So fast. And just being like, oh my God, man, just see, just, you know, I can just see him on my like throwing like triple, triple left hooks, you know, one after the other, like blah, blah, blah. And just, you know, and comparing it mentally to what I could do. You know, and just being like, what the fuck? How does this guy exist? You know, like that made me actually love Gamboa for, for his entire career. I've been such a big Gamboa fan, although he should retire at this point for sure. Um, yeah. he, was, <laughs> and, he was special, though, wasn't he? Like he. Oh, yeah. Maybe, Absolutely. maybe we saw. We were and in Atlantic know, City. Was, they for years. I mean, it was like I think even in that fight, it was like they had Wama and him both on the same card. Right. Juan Manuel Lopez, and that was like supposed to be the super fight they were building up, and they spent so long building it up that eventually they both lost, right? And so that was like it's actually a great uh, testament to how badly run boxing is. Like such a good example. Like, yeah, I mean, to me, Gamboa was like if he, if his career would have been managed properly, and he would have got great fights when he was in his prime. I mean, he his skills were incredible like as good as as good as anybody um but he wasn't he was managed horribly so by the time he fought terence crawford he got knocked out you know um horrifically horribly and he's a featherweight so i mean it's not that surprising but you know i mean there were there could have been a lot of great fights for gamboa 10 years ago you know that didn't happen um yeah so, you know, that stands out. I mean, I've covered a lot of Golovkin fights. You know, Golovkin I, I, is one of my favorite fighters, I think. Just so, uh, you know, I think probably the heaviest-handed fighter that I've ever seen. Um, and uh, <clears throat> Andre Ward, you know, I've covered some. I covered the Andre Ward-Chad Dawson fight um, mm. in Oakland and uh you know, just such a like, such a like masterpiece performance of, of just watching a, a a master like dismantle a guy round by round by round. You know, and you look at and 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 uh, Chad Dawson was like a, you know, intimidating dude, like long arm puncher, big puncher, long, you know, athletic, and Andre Ward just dismantled him and. Um, so, you know, those fights that, <clears throat> where you really see like great greatness in action, um, are some of the ones that, you know, uh, Lomachenko, seeing Lomachenko fight a couple times, I went to the Lomachenko-Lenaris fight, you know, and also, uh, the Lomachenko-Rigandial fight, which was a little disappointing, oh, buddy. Jesus Christ, tell me about it. But Lomachenko-Lenaris was actually an incredible fight. I mean, that yep. was a great great fight you know and lenaris uh did good you know lenaris is a great fighter too like um but just watching like this guy who is operating on a level b 
beyond everybody else in the world, you know. For sure. And Pacquiao, you know, while well, like uh, covered a Pacquiao Margarito fight in uh, Dallas, mm. and you know, the same kind of thing. I mean, they're obviously very different fighters, but like that quality of where you watch Pacquiao fight and you're just like, nobody, you know, he's nobody can beat this guy. Like he could fight everybody in the world one by one, and they're all going to get their ass whooped right now because yeah. he was just operating on a, a level above, you know. So, I mean, to me, those are always, I guess, like, you know, what I like best about boxing is the actual fights, you know, and not the, like, all the other stuff, all the, like, flash and the characters and, you know, like, that's interesting, but really, like, the fights are the most interesting, I think, you know. Have you, have you had a chance to meet all of those guys that you just mentioned? Uh. Not all. Some of them I have. Um, I hung out with Lomachenko for a little while. I mean, it's funny, like, and you know this. I mean, uh, I know you wrote a great piece about Andre Ward at one point. Um, so you know this good as anybody. But, like, um, if you, like, you know, I guess it's one thing if you want to, like, go, if you want to write that uh, that feature about Andre Ward and you want to go and spend, like, days with really – you know, get that time with him and get deep with him. Like you can write great stories like that. But if you're operating in the sort of within the framework of like the boxing media and the fight week media world, you know, yeah. like it's such a formulaic framework that is yeah, like ultimately completely worthless. It fucking is a huge waste of time. Like it's, it's, um, you know, so I like, I, I quote unquote spent the day with Lomachenko one day, but it, it ended up being like, you know, sitting in a hotel lobby for two hours waiting for him and then like yeah, <laughs> walking yeah. with him to the press day and like sitting with a bunch of people who are asking him like, uh, you know, I spent a day with Adrian Broner one day the same way when you're like, okay. Wow. And you, you know, you go to like, you're like going around New York with him on his press tour and shit. And it's just like, and one thing I realized from doing those stories is like it made me it made me like, like stop asking boxers questions almost because everybody asks the same <laughs> everybody yeah. asks the same questions like even and whatever questions I would ask the next like eight people would ask the same question and I'd be like all right I feel like an idiot now eventually I just mm. got to the point where I was like this is not if you're not doing it you know on that level that that you that you were really spending time with, um then the the meeting level is kind of a waste of time other than that i'd rather just go like gotta be one or the other i think and it's so hard because nowadays i mean even boxers who are renowned as being way more accessible than other athletes or celebrities it's still like it wasn't that I did anything special to get Andre Ward to agree to give a few days. It was just mm -hmm. that he knew that Roy Jones had let me have some time with him. And then there was another guy who offered an in. So it's kind of like, I remember reading like this, this really good piece that Jay Kang did about Don King mm -hmm. for Grantland. And I, I interviewed Rafe Bartholomew a bit and, and I think he edited that piece or uh, anyway, we discussed it. And it was, I think I found out he spent three weeks with Don King. And I was like, <laughs> well, 
Like you could get a hundred writers to spend three weeks with Don King and it would be a massive achievement of talent to not have something amazing. Yeah. Not not, not yeah. to take anything away from what that piece was, but just yeah. like it's just such a glaringly unfair yeah. <laughs> um, allocation of time for, for reporters, let alone that all your expenses are paid, all your travel is paid, which like ninety eight percent of boxing right. writers have no access to whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the boxing media world is so depressing. I mean, because you're right. It's like, yeah, there's like, okay, there's there's the prestige publications that they want to do. Maybe like they'll do one boxing story. You know, how many boxing stories a year is the New Yorker going to run? One or two, you know, one. Yeah, one right. So, they, okay, that's great. If you land the one New Yorker boxing story, that's great. You know, you take two months and go report the hell out of it and you know, but yeah, but then if you go to the to the press day for a fight at Madison Square Garden, it's all these dudes from like Bobby's Boxing who are all like <laughs> A are there for the free food, you know what I'm saying? And B yeah. are there because they can get a free ticket to the fight and the last thing they would ever do is write something that would piss off the promoter, you know. So that that element of it is kind of depressing just to see like it's not it's not even covered on the level of like a regular sport. I mean, at right. least in like other sports, you know, the press corps is not always great, but they uh, it, it's it's not comparable to boxing media, you know. Well, and you're right. I mean, you talked before about the fallout from the way Deadspin handled Floyd Mayweather. And I mean, I can understand where they're coming from. Most people don't want to look at the bright side of serially abusing women. And I think, like, I, I give his people credit for wanting to positively spin <laughs> multiple yeah. felonies against women yeah. in front of your children, you know. Uh, but I, I remember that, like I, I included a bit of that too, and some of Floyd's PR people. I had trouble getting credentials for the first time. Uh, yeah. I, I think your colleague at Deadspin, Dan, Dan Roberts, did a yeah. fabulous takedown. Not a takedown, because in no way was it yeah. sensationalizing what he did, but just yeah. detailing it, inventorying it. And what fascinates me when those things come out is this kind of incredulity of so many people to be like really this is really going on like surely this is um a, a hatchet job when it's exactly the opposite like dan is a lawyer by trade <laughs> and it's a pretty you know systemic inventory that's yeah. not editorializing it it's just it's just shocking that somebody like this is the highest paid athlete in history when we're looking at you know some other people where a relatively yeah. minor infraction cancels them forever. If Floyd yeah. is generating that kind of money, it's like, what can't he do, it seems like? No, it's crazy. I mean, e even if you compare it to the NFL, which is like an incredibly low bar in terms of like how the NFL treats uh, domestic violence and things like right. that, like right. that's an extremely low bar. And even the NFL, you know, has imposed so much stronger penalties than boxing and you know part of it goes back to there's no central there is no you know there's no league in boxing so who's gonna tell them you know what i'm saying like he'll go fight and i mean 
you know, what do you like? Even if the state of Nevada cancels a guy, like he'll go fight in a different state. I mean, it's so it's such a like feudalist system, and you know, it's also interesting. Like, I really believe like uh, you know, fighters are. <clears throat> Boxers are not inherently more interesting than any other group of people, um, which is like something that I feel like, um, you know, places that cover boxing, I think that people who know boxing know that, you know what I'm saying? Or good boxing writers understand that, but the general approach of the media to boxing is like, to put a level of mythology on fighters as a class of people where they're right. like, and yes, there are, you know, they do a specific thing and there are qualities that fighters have, obviously that the average person doesn't have. But in terms of like, you take a hundred boxers and put them in a room, like they're not, that room is not more interesting than a room of a hundred uh, retail workers or something, you know, like right. people are interesting in their own ways. So like, that that sort of mythology that gets imposed on fighters, I think you're uh, talking about, is really one of the downsides of that, which is like this sort of hero mythology of once guys get to the top of the boxing world, um, they get mythologized in ways that are really stupid. Because first, the guys fight for a living. I mean, it's not that shocking that a lot of boxers are violent people, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, but... When you get to the Floyd Mayweather level, it's it's like the Wheaties box level of sports, and all that has to be has to be washed away, man. Yeah, and I mean, and a lot of these people, I think the violence, as as much as maybe any natural in, inclination that they have to use violence to resolve their issues, is that they were raised in violence. They were yeah. themselves violently abused, yeah. and the, 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 that cycle of violence gets continued, <laughs> um, yeah. which you know very tragic um but yeah i i i do find it very challenging when i see i think recently i'm sure you saw it too gervonta davis drags his girlfriend from an audience and his defense of the action is i never struck her as if that <laughs> is the where the bar is on yeah. acceptable conduct with the mother of your child it and 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 then you see on social media, there's a, a big group of people who say he's absolutely fucking right. Like, like lay off this guy. It must be racism or something else. It's, it's, it's yeah. just bizarre sometimes. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, so much of this goes back to like, there's, I don't know. I would really love to see someone try to organize boxing and, you know, and, and, and because there is like who's gonna who's gonna impose a penalty on Javante Davis? You know what I'm saying? I mean the the police and what and whatnot, but like there's not a magical boxing king that's gonna come down and be like Javante Davis can't fight, you know, because there's so many holes in the in the system of boxing. I mean, it would, to me it would be so great just for a you know a fighter with a lot of credibility to come out and be like. Fighters need to get together and essentially organize a co-op, you mm. know, to to cut out promoters. You know, Bob Barum should not exist. I mean, right. or, or Bob Barum should be like a an employee. You know, what I'm saying like 
promoting a fight is a skill. You can be paid a salary for that, but you shouldn't be getting more money than the fighters are getting, you know? Right. But if you had a uh, hundred top fighters, top champion level fighters who are willing to get together and say, we're going to start a co-op. We're all going to own shares in it. We're all going to promote our own. We'll have employees who put on the fights. We're going to get the income from the TV deals. We're going to get the gate, <clears throat> you know, that's what boxing needs, man. But it, it has to, it has to come from the fighters themselves. I don't know how you do that from the outside, you know? So I, I guess last question before I let you go. If if you're staying at home, I'm hearing from some people that I trust that safe estimate is this is going to go on for at least a few months. Uh, what What is your just sanity survival strategy of that? Are you somebody who does stay at home most of the time? Are you kind of a homebody by nature? How do you navigate the this uh, kind of crucible mentally? Yeah. I don't do that many interesting things, but um... – I do go to the gym, and so the gym's closing down was like a big blow to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> the gym and the movie theater, like that's those are the only interesting things I do anyway. But like, I'm uh, I got to go outside every day. You know, luckily I live pretty close to the park, so I go out there. There's like a field, you know. There's like a field. Uh, I go out there, I run run sprints. You know, like jump roping. It's like back to the it's back to the old school workouts now, you know. It's the mm. it's the workouts that you probably do with your people in the park, but you just can't yeah. do them with anybody else. You have to do, you have to do them from a stand away from people while you do them and teach them how to shadow box and stuff. But that's what I'm doing every morning, every night. Go to the park. That's about it, man. What are you doing? I did, I'm doing the same thing. I'm going for I go for a hike every day with with the girl. We we go to Chappaqua is not too far from here. So we pay a visit to the Clintons and try not to try not to get shot at their yeah. unbelievably fortified compound. I just had to see what it looked like because you could just look up the address. And so we just drove in a little <laughs> cul-de-sac and miss you guys. And, and, and then hike in the woods where she cried after losing the election and uh, found herself. <laughs> and... Around here, like around Stanford, Connecticut, there's there's just some residential neighborhoods. It's just, it's really odd for me after a decade now living in the U.S. and in New York City to kind of go back to this sort of um, provincial atmosphere, at least like when you just step out your door to mm -hmm. see a block empty, which was very common in Vancouver where I'm from, yeah. you know, or Havana that like, I got very used to going out at four o'clock in the morning to wander and discover this very maze-like city, but I was doing it almost all alone. And I quite yeah. prefer to haunt places and explore as opposed to just being grist in a mill of, of too, too much populace, which is just Manhattan yeah. everywhere. So I wish yeah. it were under different circumstances, but it is kind of nice just to have space and not have to hear sirens, planes, taxi cabs, and people yelling into phones. Just yeah, in Brooklyn there is much more space than usual, but there's also more sirens than usual, so it's balanced out a little bit, man. Thanks so much for your time, Hamilton. Um, I would love to follow up on one point, which is I had no idea you were a cinephile. That could be a fun little. I wouldn't thing go that far. Okay. Okay. 
I'm a bad, but, I'm a cinephile for bad movies only. So. Oh, interesting. Well, there's been a lot of bad boxing movies, and I am dovetailing a little bit into some boxing cinema, the good, the bad, and the absolutely god-awful. So it oh, could yeah. be a fun little one to drop into yeah. sometime. Totally. Well, thank you for having me, man. Welcome Glad everybody. to finally be on the podcast. And uh, when you get back to the city, we'll do something in person six months from now, maybe. Yeah, yeah I'd love to. But yeah, take care of yourself, man. Thanks for the time. Hey, man. Be good. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.